0: Thank you, Mara. We're going to make you our permanent scripture reader from now on. It was really well done. Thank you so much. He was known as the harp of the Holy Spirit. And he's considered by many to be one of the greatest, most prolific composers in all of church history. No, I'm not talking about Charles Wesley. I'm not talking about Fanny Crosby or Isaac Watts. I'm talking about Ephraim the Syrian of the fourth century. He was an ascetic in the church and was considered a lion of orthodoxy in defending the Council of Nicaea. He wrote over three million lines of philosophy and theology, but he's most well-known for his hymnology. He actually wrote hymns specifically designed to counter the Christian heresy of his day, and to support Christian orthodoxy. The Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, which we recited yesterday, the Nicene Creed established the church's orthodoxy, but it was really uh, Ephraim that got the church to sing its orthodoxy, and that, in the end of the day, was the final way that Arianism was defeated in the life of the church. Uh, Ephraim always believed that the best worship was that which Proclaimed who God is and what He has done. Pretty good advice from the fourth century. And Charles Wesley, of course, fuddled that. Uh, if I had my way, I would sing all of these uh, uh, sermon series to you. You don't want that. Uh, because I think if we can sing our theology and this is one of the great insights the Wesleyan movement is, that's what gets it into our bones, right? And when I was a pastor, I I learned this lesson. Uh, I I preached sermon series, and my wife, Julie, who's here this morning, she would always write uh, or frequently write songs to go with my sermon series. And I found out over the years that long after my sermons were long forgotten, they never forgot the songs. And so if I could find a way not just simply to, uh, to sing this series to you, but have you sing it, I think it would actually make us a a lot of progress. I haven't ever forgotten or stopped believing that famous Latin credo, which you should have written down in your Bible or whatever, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, Lex Vivandi. As we worship, so we believe and so we live. It's so true, isn't it? This series really has two objectives. Uh, One is to expand our theology of the Holy Spirit, our pneumatology, if you want to use that, but it's also helping us to deepen our own experience with the Holy Spirit and understanding its role in uh, wisdom and discernment, its role in empowerment for mission, and of course holiness in our lives. The basic problem I think the church has had, I won't go into all the reasons for it, but we have developed a weak link on the one hand between the complete work of Christ, the work of the cross and resurrection, ascension of Christ on the one hand, and on the other the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And this is to break that open a bit. This sermon is just kind of the opening volley of this. This is going to be a whole year long. uh, But cracking the door between the resurrection and Pentecost is the title of the sermon. I think if if the incarnation is the knot which ties heaven to earth, then Pentecost is surely the knot which ties the church to its holy, empowered mission in the world. And if you think about the churches, the way we've dealt with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, it's not actually that we have anything against the Holy Spirit. We're not mad at the Holy Spirit. This is kind of just a persistent, benign neglect. And so part of the Wesleyan revivals was to revisit this and make... Grace and salvation were fully Trinitarian. So we we have actually in the opening uh, part of this series I uh, offered seven uh, offices or ministries of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We're trying to show the depth of this. We uh, I won't repeat any of those seven here, but we we watched as the Spirit hovered over the waters of creation. We watched the Spirit as He endowed bezalel with that uh, uh insight to, cr- to create and to fashion the ark of the Covenant, the various instruments of the the uh, holy works of israel we watched the spirit fall down on the 70 elders we uh, saw moses laying hands on joshua to receive the holy spirit an amazing text we saw the spirit come on the judges on the kings we we saw isaiah's prophecy of the messiah in Isaiah 61, preparing for the Messiah. We saw Jeremiah's redirected heart. We saw Ezekiel's vision of dry bones. We saw the wisdom on Daniel interpreting dreams. We saw Joel's vision of the Spirit poured on all flesh. And that great work of uh, Zechariah, who looking back acknowledged that, uh, what good advice to all of us, that the church or the people of God cannot be renewed by human power, not by might. Not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And John Oswald, in a powerful way last week, reinforced this theme in so many ways to help us in this series. We also uh, went then to the minister of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, and we saw him, the Spirit coming upon him at his baptism. We saw his, the empowerment of the Spirit after his temptations we saw him there in the, the temple in Nazareth where he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah. And he quoted that, his very, the first words, if there ever was a statement to show that Christ did not want to separate Christology from pneumatology, the very first words of Jesus in his public ministry, where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, Isaiah 61. And then all through his life, as the God-man in the world, extending his ministry through the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. Well, today, uh, this time, we come now to three texts in, uh, Test- in the New Testament. I don't ever recommend preaching on three texts, uh, but in this case, I'm going to do this just because I want us to kind of go across the horizon here and see some snapshots in the post-resurrection, pre-Pentecost period in the teachings of Christ. And the purpose is to show that Jesus is breaking down this wall that we've erected. He's cracking open this door that we so often have put forward. When you get to Acts 1 4 and 5, one of the problems with this passage is that it has these headings in it. Like this one has the opening heading Jesus taken up to heaven. Trust me, that heading was not put in the Bible to the 13th century, it's not part of the original text. And so, what happens is, because it's there, it makes you think that the whole text is about right there before the ascension. But actually, it's unlikely to be true. Uh, on one occasion, our text, he's talking to disciples, and this is not when the, the ascension happens, which is two verses later. But he's talking to them, and he says something which is a bit unintuitive. Because here's Christ, certainly, it's in the post resurrection period, so this is still preparing them for his departure and you expect him to say, you know, okay, troops, go, go, go. Right? We get that in Matthew 28. We get that later on in this passage, uh, right truly before the ascension, Acts 1, 7, uh, and 8. But here we don't get go, go, go. We get stay and wait. Right? He says, do not leave Jerusalem. This is not like go into all the world and preach the gospel. Do not leave Jerusalem. Did, Did Jesus say that? Do not leave Wilmore? Oh my goodness. We are in trouble. Do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my father has promised. Now this waiting uh, command, which we often neglect with the go command, is very, very important. It's important. It's juxtaposed, in, and that's why Luke did this in Acts. Now let me just do a little self-confession here. In my natural self, Tim Tennant, non-endowed by the Spirit, which happens quite often, uh, my idea of waiting is like waiting for a light to turn green. Okay? Uh, Waiting for a commercial to get over. Waiting for the little scrolling thing that comes out. Like I get like a hundred thousand emails a day, so it takes. In the morning, I turn it on, my my computer almost explodes, and there's just like this little scrolling thing. We're trying to scroll them up. I'm like, come on, give me those emails. (laughs) I gotta get started, as J.D. Walt used to say, changing the world one email at a time. (laughs) So you know, I I that. But in the spirit-endowed aspect of my life, where God meets me, there have been times when God has brought me into waiting, learning to wait for God to prepare me for what he has for me to do or to, to say or whatever. And that waiting is so important. I think that God has given us the wait and go impulses and commands because the wait impulse and the go, the go, impulse, the go command keeps us, of course, from being too passive which is also a problem, but the wait keeps us from being triumphalistic, right? We're waiting on God's work. Sometimes, let's just say it, it's harder to stay in Wilmore and get prepared than to get ready and go into ministry in Papua New Guinea. Sometimes, sometimes it is harder to wait for the disruptive empowerment of the spirit in the unknown tomorrow than to work in the flesh that we know today. Sometimes it's easier for us to work with the power from below than to wait for the power from on high. So we we get this and Jesus got that and so he gives them this promise, this, this statement, wait for the gift my father promised. Notice that by the way, the Trinitarian structure of that. Here is the, uh, the second person of Trinity and it's us to wait for the gift of the third person of Trinity promised by the first person of Trinity. Isn't that great? Trinitarianism, it just kind of rings out everywhere. But then he says this, which is a little surprising. Uh, he says to them, and this is a phrase we often neglect, this is verse 4, which you have heard me speak about. When did he do that? Wait a minute. Wait for the Spirit which is promised, which you have heard me speak about. In other words, Jesus talked about it. Well, it could be uh, Luke 12, 12, where he says, The Holy Spirit will teach you what you're to say uh, before you go out into the world. I get that. Uh, but in fact, it's most likely, more likely even, than the, uh, the upper room discourse where Jesus. Uh, Extends amazing teaching on the Holy Spirit. I have a slide for you, just one slide to show you uh, some of the places in uh, the Gospel of John where he was preparing them for this. Uh, John 14, 16, 17, I will ask the Father, He'll give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Later on, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. I I, I love this. I, I know a different term of helper, paraclete. What do we, how do we change? Somewhere between advocate and helper. It's somewhere in that category. It's a very powerful word. John 16, it's to your advantage I go away. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. The advocate, the comforter. if i go i'll send him to you when he comes he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment john 16 when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you in all truth He will not speak with one authority whatever he hears he'll speak he will declare to you all things that are to come now look at the ministries of the spirit in this passage he's going to help us he's going to teach us he's going to bring to remembrance things that christ has taught he's going to help us bear witness to him He's going to convict the world regarding sin. That's really important. He's going to lead us and guide us into truth and declare what's to come. Now, these texts were very, very important to the early church, the patristic fathers of the church. Uh, You you look at Irenaeus in the 2nd century. You look at Cyprian of Carthage in the 3rd century. You read Athanasius in the 4th century. These texts are very important to them. They're used endlessly to reinforce the, 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 the di- deed of the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian theology, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in mission, in and through us, etc. etc. But if I can quote Lord of the Rings, that's allowed here. <laughs> Galadriel, if I can misquote her, in some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History became legend. Legend became myth. Somewhere along the way, the church ended up forgetting, losing our memory, and we lost half the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe that everyone in this room is theologically Trinitarian, but a lot of us are experiential Binitarian. Can I say it? We have to re-embrace the full gospel. That's why our motto, by the way, says, the whole gospel for the whole world. Read H.C. Morrison, what, what he meant by that was the whole, go- not half the gospel, it was saying embrace the whole Trinitarian gospel and that alone will bring us out in mission to the whole world. So Jesus' text is bridging the gap between us, between his ministry and the ministry of the Spirit. And notice how this te- these, all these texts that go back and forth, the Father gives the Spirit, the Father sends the Spirit, Jesus sends the Spirit from the Father. Jesus sends him to us. This ended up creating a huge controversy in the church called the Filioque Controversy. Does the Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son? Filioque means and the Son. And You'll notice the Nicene Creed is slightly different in Eastern and Western Church, and they fought over this phrase, and the Son. This, along with six texts that use the phrase Spirit of Christ, this was the bullseye of that whole debate. And it's an important debate. Let me just say it up front here. That is not the purpose of these texts. These texts were not designed to comment on the procession of the Holy Spirit. As important as that is. I'm not denying the importance of 300 years of fighting. Okay, <laughs> It's really important. But the purpose of this passage is to declare to disciples that the coming of the Holy Spirit... Prepare them for his ministry to bridge the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of these texts. So when we get to verse 5 in our text, he says, John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is recalling John's promise, which is in all the synoptics, that that Jesus would come and he would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the baptizer. And that it would happen. Well, Jesus apparently, he says here, it hadn't happened yet. It wasn't in his ministry. It was in the, in the days after his days of Pentecost. So there's a lot here where Jesus is trying to break down this barrier between his ministry and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, next, go to Luke 24, and we come to our next uh, passage. And this is the second post resurrection saint of Christ that's before us. And Christ does this amazing summary of the, uh, what we call the gospel narrative. the Christ will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day, repentance and forgiveness of will sins. We preach his name to all nations. It's really an important gospel summary. The only one that appears in the post-resurrection saints of Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I am going to send you what my father promised... Again, the Trinitarian structure there. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Now we're not going to explore this much except to say he uses this expression only found here, by the way, that there is something that is promised for us which Jesus calls clothed with power. Now we're going to... See the diversity of language eventually gets used as this series develops. This is the only time this phrase is used. But we do believe there is power. Now we'll have to explore later. Power for what? You know, power for mission, power for holiness. What is it power for? We'll look at that later, but this is language of power is there. We are to wait for this power that God has planned for us as the people of God. Now, finally, we come to the John 20 passage, which is uh, John's Great Commission in the upper room uh, there at the, at the evening after Easter. Jesus comes in, and we have uh, <coughs> John's uh, verse of the Great Commission. Uh, he says, uh, peace be unto you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Okay, it's a great, I've already preached this text before, I won't go into it again, 42 times Jesus uh, in John's Gospel says he's a sent one. This is the 42nd time we are sent out in the world. Very, very amazing text. But then he goes on to say, and this is our point here, with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot here. Now, I'll just last week, when we did the first part of this, I mentioned in the Old Testament you have seven metaphors of the Holy Spirit that are developed in the Old Testament. You have dove, cloud, fire, breath, wind, water, and oil. And I told you that all seven of those get brought over and they get exemplified in the New Testament. So uh, last time we actually saw at the baptism of Jesus water and the dove. Uh, This week we are now seeing the breath. Next time, Acts 2, you'll see fire and wind, okay? So this is all going to be unfolding as this series continues. But here, you have the breath of Jesus on the disciples. This is before Pentecost. In the upper room, he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what's happening here? There's four things briefly. Number one, this is the breath of the new creation, there's no Jew on the planet that would have read this, not immediately thought of Genesis 2, verse 7. We think of it as well. We should. In Genesis 2, 7, we have the God forming the man and woman, and he breathes into us the Holy Spirit. He breathes the Spirit, the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God into us and makes us living beings. All right, That's the creational act. Here he breathes again. It's the the breath of the new creation. This is almost a recapitulation of the creation account. But now it's the new creation, what it means to be now endowed with the Spirit, to usher in the next new reality. Then secondly, this reinforces that, in fact, Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. John says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here he is doing it. So again, there's no uh, doorway between Jesus' ministry and the Holy Spirit because Jesus is the baptizer. He's working in conjunction. And by the way, this door uh, that we've erected gets blasted both directions. On the one hand, we're trying to show that Jesus is the one that blasts through this door. He not only cracks it, but He kicks it open, and He follows us through, and He makes sure through the power of the Spirit that you're holy, that you have discernment, you're empowered for mission. But the Holy Spirit, by the way, blasts through the other direction. And he won't let you forget that you could not come to Christ without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Everybody in this room has the Holy Spirit. You could not have come to Christ. That's what we saw in John. Remember, he will convict the world regarding sin. The Holy Spirit is active even in unbelievers, convicting them of sin, drawing them to himself. No end comes as the Father draws them. He draws them through the power of the Spirit. So we have the Spirit's work in what we call prevenient grace, preparing us to receive God's grace. You cannot be justified without the Holy Spirit's work. So our, our point is not that you need, you need the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. We just say, don't stop. Keep getting more. Keep getting filled with the Spirit. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Be sanctified. Thirdly, this text teaches us that Pentecost is not merely a singular event. Pentecost, we've we've really overly isolated it to say the Pentecost. You know, the Holy Spirit came on Day of Pentecost, and we weren't there. Sorry, we missed it. But the Spirit of God keeps falling down. The Spirit of God comes down in John twenty, in Acts two, Acts four, Acts six, Acts seven, Acts eight, Acts nine, Acts ten, Acts thirteen, Acts nineteen. Are you getting a pattern here? It happens a lot. He wants to keep on pouring out His Spirit upon us. Fourthly, we have the language of receive is related here to the third person of the Trinity. Now, this is one of the great things about this. If you, Once we go through all of these texts, which we'll eventually, you'll find that a, there's eight different expressions used for the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. Now, we love to codify choose, choose one, and, t- and demand that everybody use that language. But that's one, the New Testament doesn't do that. You have clothed with power used one time, Being baptized with the Holy Spirit, used twice. Receiving the Holy Spirit, this is one of them here, used eight times. Coming upon, or the Holy Spirit falling upon you, used four times. Pouring out on us is used three times. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, also used eight times. The Spirit given to us, used four times. And then of Jesus it said, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts says this, that's one time. Now, I want to come to this word receive because this is really important. He says, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, everyone in this room knows that we have a mountain of evangelistic literature that asks people to receive Jesus Christ. In fact, which by the way is good. I'm not against that. I'm all for that. Keep it up. We, it's almost iconic in our world to say, I have received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's become kind of like almost an iconic evangelical phrase that we put out there. Like, what is the goal of your ministry? To get people to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I love it. I'm all for it. I believe in it. But what we have is almost no comparable, uh, comparable emphasis on receiving the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine someone said, you know, well, I want to see, I've received the Holy Spirit as my personal sanctifier. It doesn't actually roll off your lips. I I won't hear it this week. I mean, go on YouTube and type it in. There must be some video on it. I don't know. But I want to hear someone say, you know, I have received the Holy Spirit. Just as we say we receive Jesus Christ. Because the triune God is not merely interested in forgiving you. He also wants to transform you. Right? That's what all this is about. We've got to get away from this low-bar Christianity. What is the least one has to do to become a Christian? That is track Christianity. We are preaching New Testament Christianity. We want to know what's the most God can do in your life, not what's the least to get you through. You know, so-called fire insurance. I'm not interested in fire insurance. Well, I am interested in fire insurance, actually. (laughs) But I'm so glad there's a lot more than fire insurance. There's one, my roommate from college once said to me, he says, I came to Jesus with the fires of hell on my rear end. He said, but thank God they've now cooled off, you know. God, okay, we came to Christ maybe with the fires of hell on our rear end, but you know, we have opportunity to enter into the kingdom now, explore all that he has. Transformation of lives. Abraham left his father, became a homeless wanderer, and ended up a father of a nation. Joseph was sold into slavery and rescued a people. Moses fled to Midian and ends up in the presence of a burning bush. Naomi and Ruth returned to their home empty. but ended up discovering the providence of God. Gideon stood fearful in the winepress, ended up being called to lead an army. David was tending sheep and suddenly found himself slaying a giant and being promised a throne. Jonah was scared and running away from God, ended up preaching the gospel to the Ninevites. The widow of Nain was on her way to the cemetery and ended up with a resurrection party. Thanks be to God. Zacchaeus climbs a tree and finds divine acceptance. A bunch of fishermen mending nets ended up with a mission to the nations. What is the theme in all of this? that God is taking ordinary people like you and me, and by His Spirit, He is transforming us to be part of His mission in the world. Can we say amen to that? Can we say today as a community, we want more than a tepid, easy-to-swallow so-called gospel which is void of power and holiness or transformation. Can we say today, we want more than what we're currently getting from our denominational structures? Can we say we want more than civil religion? We want the rebirth of New Testament Christianity. Can we say we want more than professional Christian career contentment? No, we want that holy desperation which is the only soil that God uses to bring forth renewal and awakening in the church. Well, let me close with lines from the hymn of one of the hymns of Ephraim the Syrian, of which we started, who taught us to sing our theology. And one of his many hymns, he didn't title it this, but it could be titled Cracking the Door Between the Resurrection and the Pentecost. Because it's a hymn which shows the great joyful colloquy, the great joyful triune uh, collaboration, working together to bring us to God's plan for us in the, the breaking down of Christology and immunology. Listen to this hymn of Syrian, the, the Ephraim, Ephraim the Syrian. On this feast I garland the door of my heart. Come, Holy Spirit, your blessed fire impart. Fire and spirit in the waters of baptism that raised us up. Fire and spirit in the mysteries of bread and cup. That fire that once descended to consume a world of sin now brings life and hope and power within. Thank you, Ephraim. Help us to sing our theology. Help us to feel this, believe it, and know that you are doing a new work in our lives, in our community in this day. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, that you always call us upward and onward. And Lord, deliver us from our tepid, scared, frail ways. And Lord, give us rebirth into your great yes to us in Jesus Christ. That will overcome all the no's that we have in our mind and our heart, all the things we can't do, what can happen. Lord, may us be reborn into recognizing that you are ushering in your kingdom. And, Lord, there's no power of hell that can stop what you are doing in the world. It may be like seed growing in the soil. It may be like a mustard seed. Lord, your kingdom, your rule, and your reign is being manifest. And, Lord, may it happen in our midst, in our day, in Jesus' name.